Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Whether you are looking for weekly Bible studies, in-depth courses, or talks related to the faith, you will find it at the ICC. Please check out our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. All are welcome to join our growing international ICC family. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, my dear friends, we've got three councils to go. The title of this course is From, Nicaea, from uh, Jerusalem to Nicaea, and we're going to end up with the second council of Nicaea, the one about the images, and there'll be a lot to say there. But first, we have to deal with, uh, well, the second council of Constantinople. And to do that, I just want to refresh your memories a little bit on what we saw last time. So you'll recall the first ecumenical council outside of the Book of Acts was Nicaea 325, which uh, um, essentially condemned Arianism, condemned the idea that the eternal, I beg your pardon, that the Son of God, the Word of God is not co-eternal and consubstantial. Then we saw the first council of Constantinople, 381, in which Arianism was condemned again, and also the notion that our Lord Jesus Christ did not have a human soul is condemned, and essentially meaning or defending the two natures of Christ, that he was fully human. That's Constantinople 1 in 381. Then, 50 years later, 431, remember Nestorius is condemned. Nestorius thought that there were two persons in our Lord Jesus Christ. And there, Cyril of Alexandria was dispatched really by the Pope to, um, to organize this council in which the one personhood of Christ was promulgated, and by way of consequence, that uh, the mother of Christ is indeed the mother of God, the Theotokos. But there was still another error to, to combat, and that was the error of those who believed that there is only one nature in Christ, monophysitism, and that was condemned at the Council of Chalcedon, the fourth council, where it was again affirmed that although there is only one nature, I beg your pardon, one person, I'm, I'm getting myself caught up, although there is only one divine person, Christ, nevertheless, he has a fully human nature and a fully divine nature. Now, you will recall that at this Council of Chalcedon, now the Pope is Leo the Great, 
Once again, the Church of Constantinople tried to sneak in a cannon, bringing Constantinople up nearly equal to Rome. They call it the New Rome. And certainly tried to get Constantinople to be superior to all the other patriarchates in the Orient. And for that reason, Leo had waited three years, roughly three, four years, before signing off on the Council of Chalcedon. And that three or four years gave the Monophysites enough breathing room to consolidate and spread and send missionaries. And all of this is happening, or most of this activity is taking place in Syria around Antioch. All right? And it's going to linger. And the emperors are going to be busy. The popes are going to be busy. The Western Empire is crumbling. And so this group of monophysites, those who believe there's only one nature in Christ, that is going, that heresy is going to fester in Syria to such an extent that by the time we get to the point where I wish to pick up the story, it's a force to be reckoned with still. And the point where I'm picking up now is the empire of Justinian. Now, I've devoted a lecture to Justinian, actually, in a, not in this series, in a different one. Emperor Justinian was a good egg in many ways, a great emperor. He reconquered most of the West. He reconquered North Africa from the Vandals, parts of Spain from the Visigoths, most of Italy from the Ostrogoths. He built the Hagia Sophia, the great quasi-miraculous, really, feat of architecture in Constantinople. But he was married to a woman called Theodora, who had many qualities, I'm sure, but one of her principal defects is that she was herself a monophysite, and she really wanted to see Chalcedon overturned, and she wanted to weaken the Council of Chalcedon as much as possible. And the sneaky way that this is going to be done is that Justinian is going, the emperor, is going to submit to the pope. Now, when are we? When, or, when is all of this taking place? Justinian rules from 527 to 565. So that's what we're talking about. And most of his reign will be taken up with reconquering the West. But he wants to please his wife, Theodora. He also wants to placate the Monophysites of Syria. He needs Syria to be on his side, because on the other side of the empire, the Persians are rattling their sabers as well. So he needs Syria to be loyal to the empire. He cannot afford to displease the Syrian church, which is really filled with monophysites. And his wife is one too. And his wife's best friend, who's married to Justinian's uh, leading admiral and general, is also a monophysite. So the monophysites have an in at the court, and they are a force to be reckoned with. In order to appease them, Justinian is going to seek to condemn retrospectively 
passages in writings of three different men. And these men are Theodore of Mopsuestia, Theodoret of Cyrus, and Ibas of Edessa. Their names are not important necessarily just now, but the point is that they had been anti-monophysites, uh, they had been, yes, anti-monophysites, and they, one of them in particular, who actually had been a friend of St. John Chrysostom even, but some of the ways in which they expressed themselves came close to sounding like dividing Christ into two persons. And one of them even tried to defend Nestorius. So these are men whose faith can be said to have been orthodox, but whose statements were imprecise enough to make it seem like they might be lumped in with Nestorius. And they had been vindicated at the Council of Chalcedon. So the Council of Chalcedon, in condemning these monophysites, these one-nature people, had made sure to say, and by the way, these three other men are not to be condemned along with Nestorius, they're fine. And so as a means to weaken Chalcedon, the monophysites were trying to say, these three men are heretics. And in order to please the Monophysites, Justinian published or wanted to publish this theological statement saying the three chapters, these three men are Nestorians and ought to be condemned. And he tries to get the Pope, this is Pope Vigilius, to agree to this. And Vigilius refuses. He's the Pope. And he's in Constantinople at this time, by the way. Uh, but back at Rome, though, he, so he says, no, he's back in Rome. And while saying mass over the tomb of St. Cecilia, the virgin martyr, that's in Trastevere, he's going to be arrested by the imperial troops. Now, there's something, just a little, I don't want to get lost too far in the weeds, but I want to talk to you a little bit about this Pope Vigilius. Before he was made pope, he was in Constantinople as, as, as part of a diplomatic uh, mission. And Vigilius had been meaning to be pope for a long time. Several papacies before, when he was younger, the pope had said, when I die, I want Vigilius to be pope in my stead. But then that pope changed his mind. And since then, Vigilius has really wanted to be pope. And Theodora, the Monophysite empress, is going to tempt him by saying, I will give you the papacy because we're reconquering Italy from the Ostrogoths right now. I will give you the papacy through my husband. I will give you 700 pounds of gold if you condemn the Council of Chalcedon and restore the Monophysite patriarch who had been deposed to Constantinople. So this is the backstory of Vigilius. And at the time, Vigilius had assented to this criminal deal. And when the Byzantines did take Rome back from the Ostrogoths, they abducted the sitting pope and put Vigilius in his stead. So this is terrible. However, the true pope, they sent him into a dungeon where he lived. So he was the real pope. 
Vigilius was an antipope, we would call him. He'd been elected by the, the clergy of Rome, um, but of course he couldn't be the pope because the real pope was still alive. However, the true pope died in that dungeon and that caused Vigilius to become the true pope. And all the orthodox people in Rome, and in fact in the world, were on the edge of their seat because they knew the deal. Will the pope proclaim a heresy? And this is a fascinating uh, event. It's as though once he became the true pope, something changed in him. And when Theodora said, are you going to do what we agreed to do? He said, no, I was wrong to make that promise. And I will never reverse a council of the church. I will never preach heresy, and I will never restore a heretic to the patriarchate of Constantinople. And he said to, to, he said to Theodora and her husband, the emperor, you can do whatever you like to me, but you will never silence St. Peter. So it's a beautiful story of what is known as the grace of state. And now, when Justinian tried to get the same Virgilius, who is now a chastened, he says, whatever you do to me, it's just punishment. I deserve to be punished because I agreed to this deal to begin with. When Justinian tries to get him to sign on to the condemnation of the three chapters, Virgilius says no. And he's brought back to Constantinople and Justinian promulgates the condemnation anyway. In doing so, though, he also says, by the way, we're not condemning the Council of Chalcedon. He's trying to have it both ways. Why? He has to attack the three chapters to placate the Syrian Monophysites, his buffer zone against the Persians in the east. But he also needs the support of the Orthodox Catholics of Italy in his efforts to reconquer Italy from the Ostrogoths. So Justinian has to play it both ways. It also seems that Justinian, in his heart of hearts, actually had the Orthodox faith. And Vigilius even tells other bishops, don't sign this. And yet, Justinian wants to summon an ecumenical council. And there is a reconciliation of sorts between Vigilius and Justinian. Justinian does summon the council. Vigilius says, doesn't agree yet, on the 5th of May of the year 553. And he's trying once again to have his cake and eat it too by somehow reconciling the Monophysites in Syria and the Orthodox in the West. Now, the Monophysites, naturally enough, really think that this is going to be their big chance, but they will fail. And this council is ultimately going to condemn those three chapters, but it's going to be very careful to state, we condemn those aspects of these three texts that seem to lean in an Nestorian direction. And ultimately, Pope Virgilius himself is going to ratify this council. It does have strong anti-Nestorian language, which we like, but it does close the loophole and condemn monophysitism again. So this monophysite bid fails. 
And indeed, Justinian, whatever Theodore may think, and succeeding uh, emperors are going to even persecute the Monophysites, who are going to end up in a schismatic church uh, under the head of a man called Jacob. And to this day, there is a Jacobite church in the Orient, which is Monophysite. And they call us the Chalcedonians. And we call them the Jacobites after their leader. Now, poor Vigilius, he's a broken man. He's chastened, but also broken in body because he's been in dungeons and things. He goes back to Rome. He dies of kidney stones along the way. Terrible way to go. And he's replaced by Pope Pelagius. And Pope Pelagius, who had been against the condemnation of the three chapters, but now that that council had taken place, he had to kind of accept it. And so he has a big splash. He has a big procession in Rome from the hill overlooking the Vatican. It's San Pancrazio, for those of you who know the lay of the land. Procession from San Pancrazio down to the Vatican. And once in the Basilica of St. Peter's, Pelagius is up there. So he's the Pope who has to kind of clean up this mess. He holds the Gospels and the cross above his head. He swears he's innocent of the death of Vigilius because at this point, people are kind of distrustful. Okay, For them, a new Pope maybe had a hand in the death of the old. I said, no, I had nothing to do with this. And that satisfies the people, the commoners who are more interested, you know, in the kind of CD conspiracy theories about one pope killing another. But he has to explain to the clergy that what to do with this council. Is it or is it not an ecumenical council? That's what the clergy want to know. So this is what he said. He declares that he accepts all four councils. So if right now you're reckoning in your head what that encompasses, you're doing what all the people in the, in the congregation were doing. Okay, four, let's see. Nicaea, Constantinople one, Ephesus, Chalcedon. Ah, he hasn't mentioned this last one, which is Constantinople two. But he continues to say, I accept all the decrees of my predecessors, John and Agapetus. He doesn't mention Vigilius. He condemns all the people they condemn. And so he goes on, and so he's really skirting the issue until the last paragraph of his talk when, through biblical allusions, he basically tells the clergy, stop defending the three chapters, it's over. And a few years later, Pelagius, who's been pope for a few years and understands the wisdom of accepting the three chapters, will in fact publicly say, yes, it was a council, and yes, it was ratified. So what is the good of this, this uh, very messy, I think the messiest of the councils we've seen so far, in fact, because really, it looks like it was, it was born as a ploy to support monophysitism in a way, and in the end, it supported orthodoxy. So what good was it, you may ask? Well, this is the good that it was. It did clean up the lingering possible Nestorian language that was left in theology among some of the authors. That's number one. And number two also, 
it allowed the church to confront a fact, the fact that Orthodox fathers of the church and all three men, this Ibas and Theodore and Theodoret, had been fathers of the church. Even fathers of the church can write or speak imprecisely or even say things that are not quite right. And they should not for all that be labeled as heretics as a blanket condemnation. And this was already in this acknowledgement was already in the air. Most famously, St. Cyprian of Carthage in the 250s had made a big mistake regarding the validity of baptisms conferred by schismatics and heretics. And now this council showed to everyone it is possible for good and decent theologians, priests, bishops, fathers of the church to make mistakes on one or another point of doctrine that has not yet been clarified. Get the idea? And so it added nuance, which was much needed and which we all need. So that's Constantinople II, the fifth ecumenical. We've got two more to go. We're going to finish with the seventh, Nicaea. But my dear friends, I'm sorry I have to say that monophysitism was still around. And we have a new danger in the Orient. And so now we're going to move to uh, sometime a little bit after this last council that we saw. So remember, this council of Constantinople II is in 553. And the principal enemies of the Byzantine emperor were the Ostrogoths of Italy and the Vandals and all these Western people. And the Persians on the other side were beginning to rattle their sabers. Well, after this, there is going to be a full-on hot war against the Persians. The emperor we're going to be looking at is a wonderful emperor in many ways, Heraclius. Heraclius liberates Jerusalem from the Persians and restores the Holy Cross to Jerusalem. However, in this war, the two big emperors, empires, I mean to say, have bled each other dry, namely the Persians and the Byzantine Romans. And this allows an in for a new group of people who have a new religion and a new fervor, and they're unstoppable. And they've had a charismatic leader who has inspired them, who's died. And this is Islam. And the Persians and the Byzantines are going to be left without resources to confront the threat of Islam. And that's going to play a role in what is going to happen now. So Heraclius, again, needs the help of the Monophysites of Syria, this time against, well, at first the Persians and then the, the Muslims. And there was now full-blown monophysitism within the empire does not have as much strength as it, as it had with Theodora. But there's still some, there's some uh, mitigated, we might say, monophysites. And Heraclius is saying, well, wouldn't it be nice if these moderate monophysites could be loyal to me against the Muslims? So it's the same story. And the patriarch of Constantinople says to the emperor, I have just the solution. 
It is true that our Lord Jesus Christ has one person and two natures. We know this. However, when Christ incarnate operated, let's say picking up a glass or walking about, that's a single operation, right? And for a single operation, when I will myself to pick up a glass of wine off the table, well, there's one will involved. And so Christ really had only one will, you see. And so that, and it must be, uh, he called it a theandric will, a human divine single will. And the emperor says, well, that sounds fine. And I know those Syrians will agree with that, but make sure that the Pope agrees. And so Sergius in 634 writes to Pope Honorius, and keep this man's name in mind, Sergius of Constantinople writes to the Pope of Rome. And he says, Holy Father, I've been teaching that there's one will in Christ. And here's my argumentation. Leo, the great Leo in his tome at Chalcedon had said, each nature operates with the cooperation of the other. Does that not mean that there's a single operation? Number one. Number two, he appeals to some texts of Cyril of Alexandria. Remember, he's the one who went against Nestorius. That looked like they might incline in that direction. And thirdly, he, apply, he appeals to a forgery. He doesn't know it's a forgery. It's an apocryphal sermon of a former patriarch of Constantinople whose name is Mennas, a sermon allegedly delivered in the, in the presence of Vigilius, which mentions a single will and a single vivifying operation. Okay? And this is the case that Sergius makes to Pope Honorius. He makes the case to the Patriarch of Antioch. And Antioch says, yes, yes, that's good. We believe that. But remember, this is Syria. The Patriarch of Jerusalem says, no, this isn't right. So there's some dissent. And there are people who agree with this new language of there being one operation, one will. And some say, no. What will Pope Honorius say? He writes back, Pope Honorius, who reigns from 625 to 638. And it's pretty clear that Honorius did not quite understand all these subtleties that these Greeks were babbling about. He writes back to Sergius saying, yes, yes, of course, there cannot be two opposed wills in Christ. He says opposed wills. There cannot be two opposed wills in Christ. But you can imagine how on the other side, people put little ellipsis points saying, the Pope says there cannot be two wills. Okay. And that is going to be, and furthermore, he says this, the Pope Honorius says, this is what I teach in the West, and that is what you should teach in the East. So Sergius says, well, the Pope is telling me to carry on with this error. One will. Now we have to stop because as you know, when you're studying the councils, you have to learn all these long scrabble words, okay? So this error 
The belief that there's only one will in Christ is called monotheletism. The verb to will in Greek is thelo. So monotheletism is the belief in one will. And that's the heresy that we're dealing with. And we're going to have to see it condemned. So the monothelites, for those who believe this, say, ah, the Pope is on our side. There's a big row in the East. The Patriarch of Jerusalem says, no way. The monks step up to the plate, as they often do, saying, no, this is a heresy. The Pope is appraised of this big row, and he makes the wrong decision. He says, stop squabbling. I don't want to hear about this anymore. No more discussions about one operation or two operations. Stop it. And that is a mistake because it puts truth and error on the same footing. And if the Patriarch of Constantinople believes in one of these two doctrines, a lot of people are going to fall into line, especially if you can wave around not one, but now two letters of Pope Honorius, one saying there are not two opposed wills in Christ, and furthermore, stop squabbling about this. So that's Honorius. And there's going, there will be imperial documents. One is called the ecthesis, the other one is called the type. Anyway, the emperors themselves publish documents in favor of one will, and in favor of no more squabbling. Now, the successors to Pope Honorius in the West are going to be much more aware of the stakes. And a new pope in the West, Theodore is his name. He reigns from 642 to 649. He goes so far as to depose the new patriarch of Constantinople, who in turn has the private chapel of the pope in Constantinople sacked. All right. Now, in this course, we're not going to go as far as the schism of Photius in the ninth century. We're certainly not going to go as late as the so-called schism of 1054. But at least here now, you know that difficulties between East and West go back before all of this. And this is one example of this, where the Pope Theodore deposes the Patriarch of Constantinople, who is a monothelite heretic, and then in response, the Latin chapel of Constantinople is sacked. 638, the emperor promulgates again monothelitism, religion of empire. Now, this is terrible, but we're getting close to a resolution. A later pope by the name of Martin, Martin I, has one of those recurring synods in St. John Lateran around Easter time. 649. And there he, the Pope, and the assembled bishops of the West, or of, around Italy, okay, so this is not some big count, just a local synod of the Lateran, says, no, no, no. In Christ, there are two natural wills and two modes of operation. So they maintain that the human nature comes along with its own will and operation. But you'll recall that under Justinian, Italy had been conquered by the Byzantines. And so it's quick work for the emperor to have this pope arrested, exiled to Crimea, which is now part of Russia, recent, of re, uh, recently only. 
and he's going to die there in 655. One of the great defenders of orthodoxy in the East, Maximus the Confessor, feast day, 13th of August. And he has a second feast day too. I think in the Oriental calendar, he's got two feast days. He is going to fight this heresy to such an extent that he will be put on trial, condemned, and on orders of the authorities, he will have his tongue and right hand cut off. No more preaching, no more writing. And he's going to die of these wounds. So at this point, this brings us to 660. Constantinople has fallen for the heresy. Rome has not. And you'll remember that once again here, as had been the case with Justinian, so too with the current emperors of the Byzantine Empire, part of the motivation to defend some form of monophysitism or mono, in this case, theletism, had been to maintain the loyalty of the Syrians who were monophysites because they needed that loyalty to keep, in this case, Islam at bay. However, in the meantime, Syria has fallen. Antioch, Damascus, etc., are now part of the caliphate. In fact, we're getting to the point here pretty soon where a Christian boy called John is born in Damascus, and he will be the famous St. John of Damascus, to whom we shall return soon. So, now that the Monophysites are outside of the Byzantine Empire, and to be quite honest, the Monophysites seem pretty happy under Muslim rule, they're no longer needed. And so, and furthermore, the, the emperors have been getting more reasonable. And we get to Constantine IV, emperor, 668-685, who says, we need to put an end to this nonsense. He writes to the Pope, by now we're getting to Pope Agatho, to, and they agree we need to, we need to get a, a council going. And as is often the case before an actual ecumenical council, the Pope has a Roman synod in the Lateran. And there they repeat the condemnations that Martin had issued against monothelitism. He sends eight papal legates for this upcoming ecumenical council. They bring a synodal letter expounding the true doctrine of the two natures, two wills, two operations. And in this letter, Agatha was sure to write, number one, the see of Rome is inerrant and has never succumbed to error. And it's important for him to say this, because kind of as a spoiler alert, I'll tell you that this council that's coming up now is going to have to deal with what Honorius did, the Pope. Okay, that's the idea. here. This is Constantinople III, which is going to sit from 680 to 681. In this letter also, the Pope and the Synod of Rome said that there cannot be a human nature without its own will. So they state the, the orthodox position. And so Christ had a human will and a divine will. And there's an appeal in there to the Patriarch of Constantinople asking him to repudiate this error. So we have the council. It begins on the 7th of November, 680. It takes place in the imperial palace under a very well-known dome 
And the word for a dome in Byzantine Greek is trulon. So for that reason, it's sometimes called a council in trollo because it's in the dome, trollo. Now I say that, by the way, be careful because this council, so this is Constantinople III, 680, 681. As it happens, for those of you who've read church history and the word trollo might ring a bell, this council does not issue any um, uh, disciplinary canons so they have a council later on, also in Trollo, with disciplinary canons. And that often is called the Quinisex Council or Council in Trollo. I'm not going to deal with that one. This Constantinople III happens to, is sometimes called in Trollo. The papal legates preside. Now, the patriarchates of Alexandria and Jerusalem, where there were many monothelites, were unable to send many of their representatives because the Muslims are running around the countryside. The monothelites who are present really put on a good show trying to defend their era. There's a guy called Macarius of Alexandria who tries. But then the Orthodox say, okay, let's just go over the documents. They read out the Tome of Leo again. They read out the letter that was sent from Rome by Agatha and the Roman Synod. They read many fathers of the church on all of this. Everything points to the truth of the two wills. And George, patriarch of Constantinople, stands up and says, you're right. This one will business is wrong. There, has to be, there have to be two wills in Christ. So he's convinced. And so the 13th session in March of 681 condemns monotheletism. The very last session, the 16th, declares that two natural wills is the faith of the church. And when they say two natural wills, what they mean is two wills corresponding to the two natures. And Constantine III is hailed as a great emperor. In fact, they, they compliment him by calling him a new Justinian. And you might think, well, that's not exactly the right emperor to bring up. I mean, after all, Justinian, the three chapters, that was a bit of a mess. But I think it was actually quite wily as well. It was a way of saying, Constantine, you're great. You are like Justinian. And it was a way of whitewashing, perhaps, what Justinian had done by saying, well, he's great after all. Big reconciliation, East and West, hugs all around. A Latin mass is celebrated in Hagia Sophia. I went to such a mass this morning. Today's the feast of the chair of St. Peter, as it happens. Beautiful. I went to the chapel of the fraternity of St. Peter's seminary. Gorgeous ceremony. So that's what happens, Latin mass. And they condemn all the monothelites. They condemn Sergius, the patriarch at the origin of all of this. And they condemn Honorius. And the council is ratified by the new Pope Leo II, because Agatho dies that year in 681. Pope Leo II ratifies this council with its condemnation, including the condemnation of Honorius. So what are we to make of this? A pope is condemned by a council. Can that be? Well, not officially, except this council is ratified by another pope. So either... 
Honoris is wrong, or Leo II is wrong, along with the cat. So what's going on here? And the question is this, ultimately. Was Honorius condemned because he was a heretic? Or was Honorius condemned because he carelessly permitted a heresy to spread and did nothing to correct it? And Leo II himself, the ratifier, gives the answer. He ratifies the council and its condemnations, but he restricts the condemnation of Pope Honorius to a matter of discipline. He did not confirm the brethren. This is an important distinction to make. Uh, it's a bit more complicated than the way I've put it to you. I can get into greater detail in the, in the Q&A. But this council then, it gets rid of this mistake monothelitism, that's good. But also Honorius is an important figure to remember because at Vatican I, 1869, 1870, Honorius is the test case on the issue of papal infallibility. And at Vatican I, the bishops and theologians who are against the doctrine of papal infallibility will try to make the case that Honorius defended monothelitism ex cathedra, with, with a view to showing that ex cathedra pronouncements can be mistaken. You get the idea? And at Vatican I, the case of Honorius was fiercely debated. And that council saw and repeated essentially what Leo II had said, no, no, he was reproved, blamed for his carelessness. So that's monothelitism. And that was the sixth ecumenical council. It's a beautiful council. This one, I mean, it brings up the, the honorious thing is a bit messy, but this is much less messy than Constantinople II and the, the three chapters. And now we get, I think, to one of my favorite councils, and it's the response to iconoclasm. And there's a long story there. I'll try to shorten it. We've got uh, 12 minutes together, it looks like. But this is the error that comes up now and that's going to have to be condemned. Remember how at Jerusalem, the Council of Jerusalem, it was some converts from Pharisaism who wanted the Jews to be wanted Gentile converts to be circumcised, and so the apostles had to get together and say no. Well, this time it's iconoclasm. What is iconoclasm? Well, icon is icon. It means image in Greek, fine. Clasm is from the Greek verb kladzo, which means to destroy, smash, break. Iconoclasm is really a movement to destroy icons. There are two periods to this crisis. There'll be two iconoclastic uh, 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 periods. So what is the background here? Well, now I, we have to pick, put ourselves in the late 7th century, the 690s. And the Western, I beg your pardon, the Eastern Mediterranean world is governed by two opposing empires, a shrinking Byzantine empire and a strong expanding Muslim caliphate. Now, when the Muslims took over, much as when the Germans took over in the West, 
they kept the infrastructure they found and they did not change the coinage. So that even into this time, the caliphate used the coin minted by the Byzantines. And Byzantine coin was well known to be sound and Byzantine coins have been found in China and Thailand, all over the place, because they were, um, it was a sound coin. They never mucked around with the alloy in it. You could count on, a, on the Byzantine gold piece having a certain weight of pure gold inside of it. But in 695, the Emperor Justinian II, as it happens, who was devout, put the face of Christ on the coin. And that's when the caliph, the leader of the Muslims, said, well, we can't use a coin with the image of Christ because we're against images. And so they made their own coins with just writing on it. And that's the origin, actually, of Muslim numismatics, if you happen to be a collector. But what that does is to bring up the issue of images for everyone. Now it's incontrovertible that we have two ways of looking at things. So that's 695, kind of a little premise. Now we have to get to the first episode of this iconoclastic thing, which dates from 730 to 787. We have a new emperor, his name is Leo III. And he had been losing battle after battle to the Muslims. And furthermore, there'd been an earthquake. And he was talked into believing, or maybe talked himself into believing, that the reason was that the Muslims do not venerate images and the Christians do. And so he has the image of Christ removed from the huge bronze gate of his palace in Constantinople. In fact, but this is just Leo. There was no movement among the people against images. Indeed, the workmen who were hired to take down the image of Christ were mobbed and lynched by the people of Constantinople. Undeterred, Leo III issues an edict in 730 outlawing the veneration of images. And he doesn't consult the church at this point. It's just his own will. And the people resent this, of course. And, but, but he's serious about this, and he sends his soldiers from church to church to take away the icons, smash them, and while they're at it, help themselves to the gold and silver church plate, because he could use the money to fill his coffers, which were emptied by this losing battle against the Muslim. The patriarch, Germanus, resigns over this. He venerates the images. And so let me give you two more words here. So people who, are, who do this iconoclasm are called iconoclasts, but people who venerate images, that would be most of us here in this class, I think, are called iconoduels. That means a venerate, it's from dule into dulo to venerate, so, or to serve. And so iconodule is another word for not iconoclast, okay. And he resigns or is deposed, we don't know. The Pope at the time, Gregory III condemns Leo for this. And Leo, the emperor, responds by invading and taking back Calabria, Sicily, and so forth. Because by this time, the, um, the Byzantines have lost uh, Italy 
and it's it's uh, uh, really more or less being administered by the Franks. So, and he puts them under under the jurisdiction of Constantinople. So the Pope condemns, the Emperor invades. That's what's going on. Leo III dies, the Emperor. His son Constantine V succeeds and summons a council in 754, which promulgates iconoclasm. No patriarch goes, very few bishops. At this particular point, there's no patriarch in Constantinople even. Uh, a lot of bishops are under Muslim control, they can't come. And for that reason, it is called the Headless Council of 754. And they say, they dare to say, let me read to you what they say. This is one of those anti-councils. They say, supported by the Holy Scriptures and the Fathers, we declare unanimously in the name of the Holy Trinity that there shall be rejected and removed and cursed by the Christian Church every likeness which is made out of any material and color whatever by the evil art of the painters. If anyone ventures to represent the divine image of the word after the incarnation with material colors, let him be anathema. If anyone shall endeavor to represent the forms of the saints in lifeless pictures with material colors, which are of no value and are of the devil, let him be anathema. In fact, what they say is, if you want to represent Christ or the saints, live like them. No art. And some of you my age older may have heard even priests in our own time say, away with all the plaster statues, you should imitate the saints, not just make images of them. Have you ever heard that? I have. And that's what they said at this council of Hyaria, 754. And then they come up with arguments to defend themselves. I'll give you some iconoclastic arguments, okay, just so you can kind of see how the how it's always good to know how these people think, okay. A real image, they say, should be an exact likeness. In other words, it should have the same substance. You can only represent a man by a man, and you can't. I mean, I guess unless you have a twin, maybe. And you certainly can't do that for Christ, so it's out. The only true, they will say this, the icon of Christ is the Eucharist, because he's actually there. So they'll accept that. Furthermore, an image of Christ should represent, to be true, should represent both natures. But you can only represent one of them, his humanity. You're presenting us a human person. Icons of Christ are necessarily Nestorian. Do you see? Because they represent a human person, Nestorian. Unless you're telling me I'm seeing both natures in one, in which case you're a monophysite, they will say. See the arguments of the iconoclasts? And the iconoduals, our side, are going to respond. And this is where providence works in strange ways, because St. John of Damascus, who writes the book on the veneration of images, is called On the Veneration of Images. He's safely in the caliphate, where the emperor can't reach him, you see. So in a way, our dear Muslim brethren are like a hedge around the Orthodox, so that the Byzantine emperor can't get at them. And he goes through the whole reason why we can, in fact, venerate images. And 
the emperors are not giving up and we're going to have more emperors and they're all iconoclasts until one of them dies relatively young. His son, by now we're down to Constantine the sixth, is too young to rule. And so we have a period of regency. Um, and the regent is going to be the widow of the dead iconoclastic emperor. So mother of the official new emperor who's too young to reign. And her name is Irene. And Irene is an iconodule. In fact, throughout this sad tale, women were on the correct side throughout. It was the men who fell for this era. And she initiates a council. And there are difficulties because the soldiers who are loyal to the emperor are going to try to keep this council from assembling. But And Irene organizes this council, by the way. So this is 787 with the Pope. And there are papal representatives in attendance. The Pope approves. It is ratified. And what they do is reverse all that the headless council has said. And the icons are restored. So that's Nicaea too. But I would be remiss if I didn't tell you what happened afterwards, because I don't know if you've detected a theme among others. It seems it takes at least two councils to get rid of any given error. One council doesn't do it. You need a second one. All right. And it's a bit like hunting elephants, I guess. You can't just get away with one shot. You have to shoot the thing, walk up, and then make sure you shoot it right through the head or the heart. So it's going to be reignited. So 787, we do have this council, and that's it. But in 815, Emperor Leo V, nicknamed the Armenian, reignites it. Again, he's having defeats against, against other people, Bulgarians and things. And there are some iconoclastic theologians, beware of theologians, by the way, who say to him, you know, all the emperors who took up images to venerate them died violently in revolt or war. Those who did not venerate images died peacefully in their beds. And the emperor's afraid of dying, in, and so, all right. Then they pull out the headless council, and they say, see, look, we even have an ecumenical council on our side. In other words, they trick him. But he, I have to say, he didn't wait to be pushed to jump. He was, he was gung-ho for iconoclasm. And there's another synod, this time in Hagia Sophia, that revives it. It continues, it goes on. But we have a second regency. And this time, it's an empress again. A woman comes to the rescue, just as Irene had in 787. Now in 842, that's where we are now. This is after Charlemagne is dead. Um, and, but this empress's name is Theodora the Good. This is not the same Theodora as Justinian's wife, the Monophysite. And she proclaims the restoration of the icons on the first Sunday of the Great Lent. Father Hezekiah was just mentioning this. On the 19th of February, 842. And that will be repeated every year. That feast day, the first Sunday of the Great Lent, is called the Feast of the Triumph of Orthodoxy. It commemorates all the great defenders of the true faith. It anathematizes all the great heretics against the true faith. 
and the faithful bring their icons to church to be blessed to this day. And it's beautiful because as part of this service, some of you are Oriental Christians. You may have seen this. The names of the great emperors and bishops and patriarchs who were Orthodox throughout history are listed. And the people respond as in a litany, eternal memory, eternal memory, eternal memory. Then the list of the great heretics is read out. And they say, and Arius, who said that the Logos is inferior to the Father, not good. And the people sing, anathema, 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 three times for each of the heretics or each of the persons condemned. It's a great way to get to the community to remember, okay, there are things that are true and things that are false. And I will add this, and I will stop there, and then we'll think about things a bit. Among those anathematized is our dear old Pope Honorius. <laughs> so that's where he's mentioned to this day is that bumbler, I don't think I'm lacking respect here, Honorius, who indeed, by his inaction or imprudent action had fostered her the heresy uh, of monothelitism in the Orient. And so that's the end of iconoclasm. As you know, icons are much venerated to this day in the East. And that's the seventh ecumenical council. It is the last council regarding which the Orthodox, not in communion with Rome on the one hand, and the Roman Church, on the other hand, agree. And that is why I'm going to stop this series with that one. The next council is involves the condemnation of Photius, the Patriarch of, of Constantinople, and the Oriental Orthodox do not accept it. They accept another one as being number eight. And so I wanted to confine it. So that's it. So that leads us then to a very different world from Nicaea. And the great Christological controversies are behind us now. I mean, images. And the next ecumenical councils we see in the Middle Ages and later are going to be about very different sorts of things. And they're also going to be all concentrated on the West. With a few exceptions, there will be some later ecumenical councils where the Greeks do come and the Armenians and others there will be great reconciliations along the lines of the Latin mass said at Hagia Sophia at the end of monotheolism. But in terms of ecumenical councils where everyone comes together and a pope ratifies it, that's the end of that particular era. And that's where I'll stop uh, my talk for tonight. I might have some more reflections later with the questions, but we'll stop there. Wow, what a whirlwind of a trip we've had over the past three weeks. Incredible. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure, yeah. Dr. Pepino, are you ready for some Q&A? Yes, yes, I am, yes. And Andrew, I see you raising your hand. Why don't you go ahead? Good evening, doctor. Uh, thank you. It was a very pleasant uh, uh, seminar tonight. I really enjoyed all the, the series. Um, I'd just like to ask a question. I, I find that, I, you know, listening through the you know, through the, the whole seven ecumenical councils, et cetera. I found, because you mentioned uh, Theodora and that she endorsed heresy and, and, and all, but I have read that she repented 
and she was made um, a saint of the church. Yes, thank you for bringing that up. Now, um, Andrew is speaking here of the first of the two Theodoras I mentioned, uh, the empress wife of Justinian, who was pro-monophysitic. And there is a cult to Saint Theodora in the Orient, not, however, in the uh, West, but certainly in the East. And yes, the, the, her repentance, however, is a matter of um, tradition, which means it very well may be true, but not of historical record, which simply means that we don't have it written down. And it's one of those many you know, things that are like that, where if she repented, I mean, you can imagine the situation, she rep, if she repents on her deathbed and has a holy death, it's going to be her handmaid to witness it, and then it spreads that way, and it's going to take a while before it makes it into the history books, if at all. But yes, there is that, there is that tradition, to be sure, of St. Theodora who repented in the end, yeah. But certainly, I mean, sometimes the greatest sinners make the greatest saints, and she certainly did, in fact, promote monophysitism through that part of history that's, that's relevant for, for, the, for the council. Yeah. If I just may add a second part, sure. also in the uh, Holy Holy Ecumenical Councils, like Origen, for example, yes, he was condemned, but he was condemned after his yeah. death, like 150 years later. Correct. He was baptized and, and, and everything, and they gave him a, a correct burial. Does it sound a little bit awkward that you condemn someone after 150 years uh, of his work? Shouldn't he have been condemned? let's say, recently, uh, within a couple of years, 10, 20 years, maybe? Yes. Well, the, the story of origin, it, it's a little bit far afield. But yes, you're right. And the principle there is that uh, history follows time, not... Logic is immediate. History is slow. And he, and you could, if you want to see, say, okay, just very briefly... Everyone loved Origen until they hated him. And you can, you can see that St. Jerome is, is the, the, the doctor of the church when it comes to Holy Scripture. He spent all his youth praising Origen, and as soon as the tide turned, he began condemning him, and people reproached him for it. And it's because everyone's a bad, and there's so much that's good in Origen, that's what people focused on, until there was a witch hunt against those who followed the bad stuff, and then it frothed over and you had to condemn him, as you say, a century and a half after his death. But that's just history. All right. Next question, please. What about OK, so you gave the the arguments from the iconoclasts. Right. Dr. Pepino. I did. But um, can you talk about John of Damascus and and what the icono duels said? Yes, yes, yes. So please. Thank you for that. Whoever asked that question, because I was hoping it's the sort of thing where I ran out of time during the lecture and hoping to get it as a question <laughs> so I can fill it in. So let's do that. So the first argument is, of course, the biblical argument. Does it not say right there in the Bible that you are to make no graven image of anything that's in heaven, on earth, or below earth, anything? You can't do any of that, right? And the repost to that is twofold. Number one, you take, take that objection on its face value. Yes, the first commandment says don't make any graven images, etc. But Christ said, who sees me sees the Father. Christ is an image of the Father 
In other words, the incarnation itself is an icon, and which means that that particular part of the law no longer applies, number one. Number two, the first commandment cannot be a blanket condemnation of all images, two-dimensional or three-dimensional, because it's in Exodus 20. Just five chapters later, the same God who promulgates the Ten Commandments tells the Jews to make statues of things in heaven, the cherubim on the, on the, on the ark, on earth, pomegranates, palm trees, and... I don't remember there being any fishes there, but there are bulls under the sea. Okay, the, the, big, the big dish for the ablution is called the sea, and the bulls are under the sea. Okay, so you can have under the sea. So that's one. God cannot be against all kinds of images since he commands images. Furthermore, the idols condemned by the Bible depict unreal things. There is no Apollo. There is no Venus. There is no Zeus. Whereas the icons don't lie because they represent saints and Christ who do exist, like just as words do. Uh, furthermore, much was made of the very famous images made without the help of human hands. Right? There's a tradition in the Orient of images of particularly the face of Christ, which are made not by human hands, but miraculously. They're called the acheropoeta. And whatever the case may be regarding these images, the fact is that what we in the West now call the Shroud of Turin, was known in another form back then, maybe folded up where you could just see the face. And so if God himself allowed the image of, of his incarnate son to leave an image on the shroud, how can we deny that that can be done? Uh, and so these are some of the things. And then that they said in their councils. Now, St. John of Damascus relies on more arguments than that, and he speaks of how these are signs that point to realities, to look at the sign is to see the reality. And I, I strongly recommend, he wrote two books on the veneration of images, one longer, one shorter. The longer one is the better one, where he, argue, he makes all of his points, and I, I recommend uh, him to you. And lastly, the argument they make is one of tradition, interestingly. They say, look, we've always venerated images. You iconoclasts are the innovators. The burden of proof is on you. You cannot go against something that we Christians have always done. So there's even, and they use the Greek word for tradition, which is paradosis, right there in their arguments. So there's the argument of tradition. I mentioned the biblical argument above and the argument from reason namely that images like words point to another reality but bring to mind that reality and therefore foster devotion in the case of religious realities. All right, Dr. Papino, uh, next question. What should we make of Pope Honorius? Aha. All right. It's, there's a dilemma involved, an apparent dilemma involved. Early on, because, you know, everyone, is, we're all pious. We all want to, uh, to the extent possible, uh, defend uh, the Pope. And so even Maximus the Confessor, for example, himself said, Honorius did not make a mistake. And he says, Honorius simply meant to say that they, they're of the two wills operate as one. Just like we might say a whole crowd of people answered with one voice, is not to say that there's only one voice among all these people. 
So that's Maximus the Confessor. Also, a later Pope, Pope John IV in 640, said, no, no, you misunderstand. Honorius only meant to say that in Christ there's only one human will, a pure will, unopposed by concupiscence. These are noble efforts, but they cannot hold. Why? Because if indeed Honorius is blameless, then we have a council ratified by a pope who made a mistake about him. So now, Honor if Honorius is blameless, then you have to explain to me how Constantinople to Leo II could be wrong in condemning him, you see. So you're not out of the woods by defending Honorius. There have been other solutions. Cardinal Baronius, the great church historian, he said it was all a conspiracy and that the letter was a hoax. And then people say, well, yeah, all right, let's say the letter's a hoax. He never agreed to monothelitism. He never fostered it. Then did the council mistakenly condemn him? Did Leo II mistakenly condemn him? You're in the same position. By exonerating Honorius, you have to condemn Leo II and the council. To which Bernier says, no, no, that's also a conspiracy. Someone put his name in. And by that point, okay, that's too many conspiracies. So these are the solutions that historians have come now. And there's another thing. Um, the letter that Honorius wrote to Sergius doesn't count because it's a private letter that doesn't engage his teaching as Pope. Okay, can you see the argument? It's a very attractive argument. But if that's true then we also have to chuck Leo's tome, which after all was a letter to Patriarch Flavian. In fact, if we don't count letters of popes in the early church, we're going to amputate, if you like, a great part of the matter that theology uses. So the solution is this. He was rightly condemned for a prudential mistake. And papal infallibility does not extend to prudence. A pope, even in matters of faith and, and, and morals, can, make, can be imprudently silent, or he can imprudently impose a discipline of silence on others, thereby fostering heresy, though without committing the thing that no pope can do. Namely, without promulgating heresy as though it were true in a definitive manner. So what we can say of Honorius is he'd be great for a round of golf, but he's not very prudent when it comes to defending orthodoxy. I think that ultimately that's what we have to do. And, it's a, and I, I will say just as an aside for, you know, for the contemporary folks here, which means all of us, that can happen to any pope to make a gigantic blunder in terms of failing to be vigilant. And uh, in fact, the Roman church has never tried to sweep this under the rug, and it would be a big mistake to do so. Indeed, the Roman breviary until the reform of Trent had the story of Honorius in it and had very harsh words against him, a pope. And this is the Roman breviary. And until the late Middle Ages in the West anyway, when you became a bishop, you had to promise to be vigilant, unlike Honorius. So he left. It was not swept under the rug. Everyone knew, okay, one of the popes made a big boo-boo that time. He imprudently 
allowed error to fester. And when he had a chance to put an end to it, what he did was to tell both the heretics and the orthodox to stop squabbling about it. This is a very big mistake. And as later historians have said, imagine if during the Lutheran uh, revolt and the Calvinistic revolt, when Catholics and Protestants were arguing about transubstantiation, imagine if the Pope, instead of saying those who deny transubstantiation are anathema, imagine if the Pope had said, I don't want to hear anyone use the word transubstantiation again. I'm sick and tired of this. Everyone would condemn that Pope for his imprudence. You're taking away the word that crystallizes exactly where the differences lie. And it's possible that Honorius was just looking for peace and instead fostered error. And, and it, you know, it's hard to condemn. Maybe he was just kind of an affable person who didn't want to harm anyone, hurt anyone's feelings. I don't know. So that's what, in the end, we are to make of Honorius, an imprudent pope who made a mistake, which, however, does not impugn infallibility. All right. I think we'll close it there, Dr. Papino. Thank you so much. I'm very glad we closed with that because if there's anything that we need to do is to cling fast to the truth, to be able always to give an account for our faith and not to allow, not to allow ourselves to be too blinded by the legitimate deference we have towards the Holy Father and the bishops and the priests in general, you know. I mean, we owe them that, but we also owe it to the truth to remember that they can just be men who make mistakes. Amen. With that thought, would you mind closing us in prayer? Certainly. In the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Ghost, amen. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. St. Peter, Prince of the Apostles, pray for us. Pray in the name for of the Father, us. Son, Holy Ghost, amen. We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers, and family members. To learn more, get involved, and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.